finished up, my boys finished up school the last week in April, and so what we normally do is we take uh, the first week of May and go do some family stuff, just kind of celebrate school being done, and uh, kind of just enjoy the first week for us of summer break, because it gets pretty crazy out here in June and July. So we were doing that last Wednesday, so Richard got a chance to fill in for me, and I was a bit jealous, because we have been talking about this idea of the plagues and and the key, the pinnacle moment of the plague is the crossing of the Red Sea and and Pharaoh's army being destroyed. And and I feel like I did all the work and Richard got the dessert. That's what I feel like. So I was listening to the teaching of it and and he ended right there and I thought he's got to at least leave me a nugget of the Red Sea. He did not leave me a single nugget of the Red Sea. So I just want to go back and do Exodus 14 again. I was, no... We're in Exodus 15. Exodus 15 completely changes. The book is now completely different in the book of Exodus. The first 14 chapters are all this buildup of the plagues and the preparation. And what you have now in Exodus 15 is now this nation set free. And the first thing you see them doing is praising God. Amen. The second thing you see them doing is complaining. Is that not a picture of the body of Christ? God, we love you. I praise you. The worship's too loud. You know, that's us. We complain. They complain at the end of 15. They complain in chapter 16. So what happens is it builds us up to the Ten Commandments. And I believe that's where we're probably going to stop here in Exodus. It's probably get right up to about Exodus chapter 20 to kind of give our final teaching on what's going on here with Exodus and everything else that's going on. So what you have here in Exodus 15 is this wonderful song of praise for what the Lord just did with the crossing of the Red Sea. Now, you have to remember a little about when it comes to praise and worship. Part of praise and worship is praising God for what he has done in your life. When you come in here on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, I hope that you take some time to say, Lord, I just really want to thank you and praise you for what you've done in my life this week. But you're also praising God for just being God. Please remember that. So often we base our praise and worship over what has the Lord done for me. He died on the cross for you. That's enough praise and worship right there. Just focus on that. So often I have people come up and say, you know, I don't even know what to praise him for. How about eternity? How about heaven? How about love? How about grace? How about mercy? And your praise and worship is focused on the Lord. A lot of times when praise and worship is going on out here, I just keep my eyes closed. I am so easily distracted. I've come to the point now where I've got to sit in the front because I just get so easily distracted. And, and, and I focus on who's coming in, what's going on. It's all supposed to be about Jesus. It's all supposed to be about who he is. So I really just try to close my eyes and just focus on the words and everything like that. Because as human beings, we become music critics. We become distracted. And I think it's really important when we look at this praise tonight, this chapter of praise. It's just about the Lord. I mean, look how it starts out. Then Moses and the children of Israel sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Who are you singing to? The Lord. You sing to the Lord. Nothing else. we got to be careful sometimes when it comes to moments of praise and worship. Who are we singing to? I was at a pastor's conference years ago. And it was a pastor's conference. Lots of people there. All the seats were full. And it was one of those conferences. It always amazes me as Christians how we become very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, ownership. We've become very possessive of areas. Like the pastor's conference would start at 9. People would show up at 7.30 to set their Bibles down in their area that they wanted, right? 
because we can't share, you know. So people would come early, set their Bibles down. And there was this one couple that set their Bibles down. It was in the front row. And it happened to be right in front of one of the speakers. And so what would happen is, as the praise and worship would start, yeah, it was a little loud maybe. They would sit there and put their head between their knees and cover their ears. Just very dramatically. It was very distracting. So I thought, okay. And then the next session, they did the same thing. I'm thinking, well, why are you sitting there? Finally, the third session, they come in, and what they do is this. Instead of sitting there with their head between their uh, knees and covering their ears, they very dramatically pull out the biggest earplugs you've ever seen and put that on in front of everybody. Now, we could get into the debates of how loud music should be or how with this or style. It's not about that. It's about worshiping Jesus. We've got to remember that. I will sing to the Lord. I will sing to the Lord. I remember one time I went with a group of people here to a, a service over in Indiana. And it was the worst praise and worship I've ever heard in my life. It was awful. I mean, it was really bad. And for the first song, that's all I could think about is how bad this is. And then I felt convicted and I, God was saying to my heart, am I still not good even though the music may not be? And it really convicted me of saying, who do I sing to? I will sing to the Lord. And that's something I've always tried to do is no matter what's going on, no matter the style, no matter the music, is I will sing to the Lord for he has triumphed gloriously. What a way to start out this. So that's the beginning. The ending, jump ahead to verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So that's the goal. The first part is I'm singing to the Lord. The last part is, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. So now, how do we get to that point? Well, he does two verses here describing God. If the Lord has triumphed gloriously, let's talk about him. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. That's just what happened in chapter 14. The Lord is my strength and song. He has become my salvation. He is my God, and I will praise him. My Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has cast into the sea. His chosen captains also are drowned in the Red Sea. The depths have covered them. They sank to the bottom like a stone. Look at the description of God here. First off, verse 2, my strength and song. Do you see this is personal? We throw this term around all the time in church, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Okay, this is personal. For you to really understand what worship is, you have to understand that he is your strength and your song. He, this is for you. Look, look how possessive this is. My strength, my song, verse 2, my salvation, my God. See, this guy singing this. This is my Lord, my Savior. If you are just looking at praise as just talking about this ambiguous God in the sky, praise will never be personal to you. You have to make praise personal. My strength, my song, my salvation, my God. He's mine. So therefore, I want to praise him. And look what he is. He's your strength. He's your song. Now, I like getting into what the words mean. That word song in verse 2 is different than the word song in verse 1. The word song in verse 1 in the Hebrew means song, a lyrical song that you sing. The word song in verse 2 means something different. If you have NIV out there, it actually translates it, uh, if I remember correctly, defense. Is that correct? Any NIVers out there? Not a single NIV. 
Stacy Tackett is the only NIV. Does it say defense? What's it say? Does it have a reference note? Check. It may have a reference note that says defense on certain NIV translations. Because that word is a bit different. No. Thanks for shooting down my teaching point. I just want to let you know that. I will go to my office right now and get out my NIV Bible that had a reference note, just for the record there. Does anybody else have an NIV that has a reference note to defense or song? Oh, for crying out loud. Who does? James Travis. My man, James. We got it. See? So basically, Charlene and Stacy's NIVs are wrong. James's NIV is right because that word is different. It is not song, but it can be translated song. It carries a deeper meaning. It, it, it carries a meaning of context of praise and worship, not just a song. So what it's saying right here, God is your strength, he's your song, he's your praise. Now, you either believe that or you don't. See, if you come into church and God's not your strength and your song... You're just going to look at worship as, I hope it's entertaining. You're not going to have a moment of worship throughout the week. You're not going to be worshiping God in devotions. You're not going to be worshiping God in your car. You're not going to be doing that because it doesn't mean anything to you. He's not your strength. He's not your song. It has to be personal. How does that happen? Well, it's interesting that these words, strength, song, or strength, defense, strength, joy, what does it say in Nehemiah 8? The strength, excuse me, the joy of the Lord is my strength. For you to have joy, you have to have God as your strength. If you are walking in weakness in your walk with the Lord, you will not have joy. I have never met someone who's joyful in Jesus who is weak in their faith. It just doesn't work. So if you become weak in your faith, you're not going to have joy in your life. That is a combination. So I think it's fascinating that God starts out here with this idea of strength and song. So to really understand this lesson, you have to first start off saying, Is He my strength? Is he my everything that gets me through life? Next, is he my song? Is he my praise? Is he my worship? Well, what do I have to worship about? Verse 2, he's my salvation. That's my big point. Is if you can't think of anything to praise God about, you praise the fact that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. He is your salvation. So my strength, my song, my salvation. And I love verse 2. He's just my God. My God. He's not the God that just sits in heaven that I don't know. This is my God. This is my personal God. I was thinking about this idea of personal. I think about faith, trusting Him. People talk about their different ages in life. I've heard people, you know, you have your physical age, how old you are. I'm 38, that's my physical age. I've heard people talk about their spiritual age. How old are you in the Lord? So I'd be 22 in the Lord. I got saved when I was 16. How old are you in your faith? That's the only age that you want to really keep around single digits. I've noticed a lot of us as Christians, if you look at our faith age, a lot of us are teenagers. Deep down inside, we know God is right, but we really just like to fight Him every inch of the way. Where really the Lord has said we're supposed to have what? A childlike faith. You know, I thought about going to get my three-year-old and bringing him up here. And, you know, childlike faith. But then I started thinking that would not be a good idea because I don't know what he would do. But that concept, if you see this person carrying this one-year-old or this two-year-old, and they're just clinging to mom and dad because it's this childlike faith. That is my dad. That is my mom. Verse 2, it is my God. Now, 
It goes back to what we talked about in Romans a couple weeks ago, of that phrase, Abba, Father, Daddy, Papa. Until you really understand that, that God is your Papa, your Father, your Daddy, a sense of endearment and love, your walk with the Lord will always be a little business-like. There has to be a humbleness of, I'm just a little spiritual one-year-old, two-year-old, and I just have faith in my daddy, and that he's going to see me through this, and that he is my God, my salvation, my song, my strength. I just rest in my daddy's arms, and I don't worry about anything. That's when you really start to understanding praise. But you may say, I have things to worry about. I would love to be the one-year-old, the two-year-old, right? But I have mortgages, I have kids, I have health, I have job, I have life. But you have verse 3. Your God is a man of war. He's a warrior. He's going to fight for you. He is going to completely fight for you. God is your warrior. He is your fighter. And this is repeated constantly again and again and again. Go back to verse 14 of chapter 14. Richard mentioned this last week. The Lord will fight for you. And you shall hold your peace. Let him do all the battling. My goodness, how much do we worry about life and events and what about this? Where God says, let me be your strength. Let me be your shield. Let me be your warrior, your fighter. And you just be the little spiritual toddler that sits in his father's arms. Because why? Jump ahead real quick, if you will. What is his name? Verse 3. The Lord is his name, Jehovah. Boy, when you got Jehovah on your side, boy, what is there to be concerned about? It says it goes one step further. Verse 6, your right hand, O Lord, has become glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, has dashed the enemy in pieces. That phrase, right hand, it's mentioned there in verse 6. It's mentioned later on. In, in the Bible, anytime you see right hand, that denotes strength, that denotes power. God's got you in his right hand. My, my boys love to come up to me and, and grab my arms, and they do the walk you, up you and then flip over type thing. I don't know if you've just, you know what I'm talking about. They crawl, they put their legs up, and then they flip over. And sometimes they don't do it without much forewarning. So come up, just grab me and start clawing, crawling up me. Well, Kenan, for some reason, always likes to grab my pinkies. Okay? That's all he grabs. I can't hold on. I, I don't have superpower pinkies. And so I can't hold on to him. I say, Kenny, you, you got to grab my hand. You got to grab my hand. That, that's where I can get a hold of you and you can get a hold of me. There's strength. So when you see in the Bible this idea of right hand, that always denotes strength. It doesn't talk about the left hand of God. It's always the right hand of God. And this is a phrase that's repeated continually. So I just went through and started marking down some references to what is it like at the right hand of God. I'm just going to throw some references out, write down the ones you want. I'm just going to read a couple different verses. When you're at God's right hand, He's holding on to you with His right hand. You're at the place of power. This is what you get for being at His right hand. First reference, Psalm 16, verse 11. Psalm 16, verse 11. You will show me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Where is joy? Where is pleasure? Where is life? At God's right hand. How many people do you know you live with, you work with, your friends with, your relatives, fill in the blank. They're looking for life, joy, and pleasure. 
but they're not looking for it at the right hand of God. They always walk away disappointed. Read the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the story of a guy that was looking for pleasure in life apart from the right hand of God. If you want the joy, the pleasure, the peace, the life, it has to be at God's right hand. What else does Psalm tell us? I just did the book of Psalms. There are so many references to right hand. Psalm 17.7. Psalm 17.7. There's love at his right hand. Psalm 18.35. Psalm 18.35. The Bible says you are held up at his right hand. If you're at a stage of life right now where you can't even just stand, I mean, you're just so overwhelmed physically, emotionally, spiritually, you only have strength when you're at his right hand. That's where you've got to be. One other verse I just want to read real quick. Psalm 20, verse 6. Psalm 20, verse 6. Now, I know the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving strength of his right hand. God's right hand is what saves you and strengthens you. And I could go on and on. Psalm 48.10, there's righteousness at his right hand. And and my favorite one, Psalm 98.1, there's victory at his right hand. So his right hand gives us love, gives us joy, holds us up, gives us strength, gives us righteousness, gives us victory. So when you read here in Exodus 15, at your right hand, that's a place of power. That's a place of strength. That's where you want to be. If you're not at the right hand of God in your walk with Christ, you don't have those things then. You don't have the joy, the peace, the life, the pleasure, the strength, because you're trying to do it on your own. You're trying to do it on your own. How long do we have to walk in this world to realize we can't do it on our own? It goes back to our faith age. We're the teenage age. I can do this. No, you can't. No, I can. No, you can't. You need to be the one-year-old. You need to be the two-year-old that's just happy to sit on his father's lap and be safe and secure. So that's what starts out our chapter on praise here. Any quick questions, comments about anything here thus far? Now, I find this fascinating. When it gets into the details about about the Red Sea, look how it describes it. Verse 7. In the greatness of your excellence, you have overthrown those who rose against you. You sent forth your wrath. It consumed them like stubble. And with the blast of your nostrils, the waters were gathered together. The flood stood upright like a heap. The depths congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall be satisfied on them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. That's just a fascinating picture, isn't it? God just kind of blowing open the Red Sea, two walls of water. They walk across on dry land, and then he just crashes the water down on the Egyptians. What a fascinating picture that is. So, it makes you start thinking, doesn't it, verse 11? Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? Wasn't that the whole point? How many times did we talk about this when we went through the different plagues? The purpose of the plagues were what? To show God's power. Big God, little g over the... Excuse me, big God, big G over little God's little g. That was the point of the whole plagues, is that Egypt would have to stop and say, where are our gods? Every one of the plagues defeated an Egyptian god. 
These plagues showed the power of the Lord. Verse 12, you stretched out your right hand. There it is again. The earth swallowed them. You and your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Just look at verse 13 and four, excuse me, 12 and 13. And look at how many times the word you or your is mentioned. You stretched out your right hand. You in your mercy have led forth. The people whom you have redeemed, you have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. What did the Jews do? Nothing. What were they going to do? This is the Egyptian army, battle-hardened, battle-trained, full of chariots. These are a few million ex-slaves. No weapons, no weapons training, nothing. They were, they were backed up to the sea. The army's coming right at them. They couldn't do anything. I have noticed so many times in my Christian walk that the Lord puts me in a spot where there is no way it can work out just to remind me that he can work those things out. And I've reached the point now, and I've got to be careful when I say this, sometimes I like it where you stop and you say, Lord, I have no idea what you're going to do. Because this, this is crazy. I have no idea what you're going to do. I don't know how you're going to take care of this. I don't know what you're doing. And I have to use this word. Sometimes I get a little excited to say, Lord, what's going to happen next? Because he's shown me he can part the Red Sea. He can part the Jordan. He can do the whole Daniel thing with the big fish. I mean, he raised Jesus from the dead. So let's just see what happens. God stepped in and took care of it. Verse 14, the people will hear and be afraid. Sorrow will take hold of the inhabitants of Philistia. Then the chiefs of Edom will be dismayed. The mighty men of Moab, trembling, will take hold of them. All the inhabitants of Canaan will melt away. Fear and dread will fall on them by the greatness of your arm. They will be as still as a stone to your people pass over, O Lord, to the people pass over whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them in the mountain of your inheritance, in the place, O Lord, which you have made for your own dwelling, the sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord shall reign forever and ever. We talked about verses 15 and 16 and 14 before as well too they were still talking about these plagues hundreds of years later richard mentioned last week rahab when they went to the city of jericho she basically said listen we heard what your god did jump ahead hundreds of years more the philistines said we heard what your god did to the egyptians that's what the lord did the purpose of the plagues verse 11 to prove god big g is better than little g gods To show, verses 12 and 13, it is all about him, not about us. I can't stress this enough, and forgive me for being repetitious on this point. Verses 12 and 13, if you still think that you can do it, you're completely misunderstanding the point. Romans 3, there is no, not one who is righteous. There is no, not one who seeks after God. None of us. It has to be all the Lord. And then verses 16, excuse me, 14, 15, and 16. Let this be told through future generations that they may see and know the power of God. Verse 18, the Lord shall reign forever and ever. For the horses of Pharaoh went with his chariots and his horsemen into the sea. And the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the children of Israel went on dry land in the midst of the sea. Man, that's fascinating. Absolutely fascinating to see what the Lord did there. Verse 20. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took the timbrel in her hand, and all the women went out after her with timbrels and with dances. And Miriam answered them, Sing to the Lord. 
for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. See, this is the problem. We are so desensitized to this story. I mean, we've heard it since we were in grade school. I can still remember my Aunt Phyllis being up there in front of the church doing the flannel graphs. And the, and the Red Sea was there, and then the flannel graph opened, and then the, she put the Jews in, and then the, she put the chariots in, and the flannel graph went over them. Right? Some of you grew up watching the Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston. Wait, we have been so desensitized to this. Do you realize what just happened? Millions of people that were slaves just got set free because 10 unbelievable plagues just happened to Egypt. And and then these millions of Jews left and they were all saved because they put the blood of a lamb on its doorpost. So then they leave and they don't just leave. The Bible says they plundered the Egyptians because the Egyptians said, here, take the money, take the gold, take the silver and go. So then they get to the Red Sea and what are we going to do? And then Egypt says, we want you back. So they send their army. And then they say, what are we going to do? And God says, hey, Moses, part the Red Sea. So he parts the Red Sea, and it actually works. Then they walk through on dry land, but the Egyptians are still following them. Then all of a sudden they get through, and then the Red Sea just collapses on the Egyptians, and they all drown. Yeah, I know, we've heard this. I know, but do you realize what the Lord just did? I sometimes feel that as Christians, we become so desensitized to the Bible. Yeah, Jesus rose from the dead. Yeah, I mean, he lived on the earth for 33 years. He was sinless. He was God. He was man. Yeah, I know. Man, don't ever take that for granted. Yeah, there's this big fish that swallowed Jonah and then he spit him back out. Did you realize what you just said there? There's a big fish that swallowed Jonah. It's kind of crazy. Never... Let God just become common in your life. Never let the Bible just become common, that you just get to pray, you just get to read, you get to go to church, you get to witness. Don't ever let that just become just a normal, everyday occurrence to you. Because if you do that, you're completely missing out on this craziness that we have of just getting a chance to walk with Jesus and being filled with this Holy Spirit. He, he Go back to verse 2. He's my strength, my song, my salvation, my God. Don't ever take that for granted. Don't ever become desensitized to God doing amazing things in your life. Because as soon as that happens, you're on the first step to becoming a spiritually dead Christian. Because God no longer moves you. You've seen it. You've heard it. Marriage got healed. Amen. They got saved. Amen. No, man, that's amazing. So I like Exodus 15 because it reminds us of the excitement that the, these Jews, what they just saw. Oh, man. They had to just stop and praise God. They had to just stop and praise God because of everything that just happened. And I wish we could stop there. And we are going to stop there for tonight. But in three verses, they start complaining. Now, will you confess to this? I'll confess to this. I'll have moments of, Lord... I am so blessed with Dawn, with my kids, where I live, with what I do, with salvation. Five minutes later, gosh, Dawn annoys me. Five minutes later, can't the boys be quiet? Man, aren't we, aren't we this? I'm praising you for 21 verses. Then verse 24, the people complained against Moses. 
Then if you just jump ahead, next thing you see in Exodus 16, and the people complained against Moses. And you hate to say it, but this, this goes on for 38 years. 38 years of this amazing miracles of what God has done followed by complaining. In fact, and I'm getting ahead of myself here, but Paul writes in Corinthians about that complaining attitude is really just disrespectful to the Lord because it's not really trusting and believing what he did. Just remember that when it comes to your personal times of praise and worship, be it corporately or just in the privacy of your own home. It's all about the Lord. Let's just go back one more time to verse 1. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. That's what it's about. He is your God, your salvation, your strength, your shield. What is your faith age? I hope you're just a couple years old sitting on your father's knee and just trusting him that he will see you through everything that you're facing. Anybody, final questions, comments here before we go ahead and close up with prayer. Jonathan. And you bring up a good point. I think it goes back to what we said a couple Sundays ago as well, where the Bible says um, that God works for the good in all things. And one of the points we said that Sunday, if you remember correctly, is what is your definition of good? See, my definition of good is healthy kids, healthy wife, healthy life. God's definition of good may not be that. So we have to trust God's definition of good. So I think there's a lot of times as Christians, just like you were saying there, Jonathan, oh, Lord, I trust you. But you won't ever allow anything bad to happen in my life. What's my definition of bad? See, we have to define good and bad in God's terms, not in our terms. And too many Christians, too many Christians walk in a constant disappointment because they have defined good in their terms. And when God doesn't do good in their terms, they feel like God has let them down. No, it's God's definition of good, not our definition of good. Just remember that. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? Yeah. Cindy. How do we not worry? Right. It, it, it can. And, you know, my... How do we get over the hump of not worrying? Well, when you figure that out, I would like to make an appointment with you. Because I would like to take notes on that. Right. No, I, I understand what you're saying. I think we have to realize what the definition of worry is. Worry is really, in, in my opinion, defined like this. It's lack of faith in God. Because worry is saying, I don't trust the Lord enough to get me through this situation. And since I don't trust Him enough, I have to take control of the situation. So to me, worry is a lack of faith in God. It goes back to the age of our childlike faith. The one-year-old is not worrying the two-year-old is not worrying. They're just sitting on their father's knee, completely content and trusting that he will see them through. It's when the kids get older and they start understanding life that they start to worry. 
So we need to keep that childlike faith. I, I guess what I'm saying, though, is this. So to me, the worrying is the absence of faith. Worrying is saying, Lord, I don't trust you enough, so I have to take control of the situation. But to answer your question of how do we do that, I think it, to me it's a multi-step process. First one is understanding that it has to be faith. I have to trust the Lord. So where does faith come from? Romans ten seventeen says faith comes by hearing and by hearing the word of God. I'm just going to throw it out there. If you're not in God's word on a regular basis, your faith is never going to be as strong as it could be. You need to be in the Word of God. That's what grows your faith. So step one is being in the Word of God. That grows my faith. Number two, prayer. What did the disciples say? What did the men say in the Bible? That they came to Jesus and said, increase our faith. One guy said to Jesus, Lord, help my unbelief. There's been times in my life where I've said, Lord, I want to trust you and I'm not. Will you help my faith? Will you increase my faith? Because I want to trust you. So God's word, number one. Just pray for it, number two. Number three. Now, when the mind naturally wanders, Paul told us in Corinthians to take every thought captive. So when that mind wanders to that situation, that to my health, to that bill, I have to take that thought captive immediately. Immediately. What's it mean to take it captive? I take that thought and say, no, in the name of Jesus, I'm not going there. I'm not going there. Because if I go there, it is a slippery slope and it just all of a sudden goes downhill. And next thing you know, worrying is like a domino. You let one fall and everything falls apart. So I take that thought captive. So now that that thought is taken captive, what do I do? You guys know the passage is Philippians 4. Verse 6, be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer. We talked about that. And supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. See, Jesus sets a guard up around my mind now to say we're not going to let those thoughts come in. But when this does start to come in, I take him captive. And i got to change what I'm thinking about. Verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, whatever things are just, whatever things are pure, whatever things are lovely, whatever things are of good report, if there's any virtue, if there's anything praiseworthy, meditate on these things. In Christian language, the word meditate has become a dirty word. Because when we think of meditate, we always think of something far eastern. The Bible has got claims on meditation before anybody else. Meditate means to chew on. It means to think about What do you need to do to keep your mind where it's supposed to be? I can only tell you what my mind needs to do. I got scriptures in my office. I got scriptures on my fridge. I got scriptures on my bathroom mirror. And I got scriptures on my bedroom mirror. So wherever I look, there's always some type of scripture to help me keep my focus on the Lord. The other way I try to stay focused on the Lord is I try to watch what I listen to when I'm driving to and from places, be it appointments or the church, etc., and I'm not getting into some debate of Christian music versus secular music. I try to keep my mind focused on the Lord through teachings or praise and worship. I'm meditating on things that are pure, just, lovely, etc. It's a conscious effort. Because if my mind has nothing to focus on, my mind, which is flesh, will naturally go to sin. And there's been times in my life I'm just sitting, driving down the road, and the most despicable thought you could ever imagine, where did that come from where did it come from it came from me i really want to blame somebody else i'm surrounded by wheat field and cornfield it came from me because what do we say in romans 3 there is no one who does good no not one there is no one who seeks after god so i you know for me cindy 
God's word, Romans 10, 17, then it's praying for faith, then it's taking those thoughts capture, captive when my mind begins to wander, and then the final dressing on top is Philippians 4, 6 through 8. Prayer and supplication, be anxious for nothing, meditate on what is good, focus on what is good, and I'm just going to be honest, it's still a battle. It's still a battle. But those are steps biblically that we could take to help out with that. Anybody else have anything here before we close up? All righty. Let's pray, and we'll have our time of prayer up here. You guys do me a favor. You guys stand with me so as we pray this. You guys have been sitting for 55 minutes, and you're already thinking about going home. Lord, your word says we sing to you. Your word says that you are our strength, our song, our salvation, our God. We don't want to just say it. We want to believe it. And all that we say and do. As we go through the rest of this week, this day, this month, this year, it's all about you. And help it to be all about you. And that you are our God. Thank you for being our warrior. Thank you for being our savior. And we praise you for what you've done and what you're going to do. And we lift all this up in your name. Amen. Alrighty, anybody that has anything they want to pray about, feel free to come on up. We will have a time of prayer. If not, we will catch you guys hopefully next Wednesday or Sunday then.